Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 4th of December 2022, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking on, What do we learn about the coming of Jesus from Isaiah? Well, I wonder if you are one of those people who, when Christmas is over for another year, tend to just remember the positives. The things that will come into your mind as you think about Christmas are things such as this coming up now on the screen. Being with those people you love. Enjoying the special food and drink. Reveling in the Christmas parties. Enjoying the presents. Or enjoying seeing our children or grandchildren or whoever it is getting excited about it all. That is the positive side of Christmas and many of us love it. But there is another side of Christmas as well. Another side of Christmas that we're only too aware of, most of us, around this time of year. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the mad rush of preparation. I'm talking about the stress of having to buy all those presents, quite often in the cold and driving rain. I'm talking about sending all of those Christmas cards and the constant worry about whether we'll get everything done. Christmas, if truth be told, is often a real mixture of the positive and the negative. Understandably, and probably quite rightly, the bits we tend to remember, certainly once it's all over, are the bits that are positive. And we do much the same, really, with the Christmas story. It's a wonderful, joyful story that we celebrate each year, isn't it? This truly fabulous story that God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus into the world as a tiny little baby. Why? So that we could be saved, so that we could be rescued and restored to him. And it's appropriate that we celebrate so much of this story with lights, whether it's a candlelight there, got a good demonstration down at the front, or in electric lights, tasteful or otherwise, that people cover their houses with and trees and so on. And of course, it's all about showing that Christmas is about this wonderfully positive message of God's light coming into the darkness in his son, Jesus Christ. And it's very easy and completely understandable to focus at Christmas time purely on that light, rather than giving much thought to the darkness that meant that light was needed. Focusing on the light is positive, isn't it? It's hopeful. Focus on the darkness can seem the opposite. But of course, we can't really appreciate the light. We can't really understand the light unless we spend time understanding the darkness that light came into. And this is where the message of the prophet Isaiah can help us. Isaiah is a great long book, 66 chapters. It's in the middle of the Old Testament. A lot of us might not really know much of Isaiah. But if I asked you to name one verse from Isaiah, probably if you thought about it a bit, there is a verse that would jump out at you. It's this one. The people walking in darkness, Isaiah says at the start of chapter 9, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. We're partly helped to remember it by the amazing poetry that even in translation is preserved of that verse. But probably the main reason why if we know that verse, we do know it, is because it's so often read near the start of carol services, isn't it? It's very often the first reading. 
A carriage by candlelight service, like we'll be having on the Sunday before Christmas, is often done in darkness but with candlelight, and it's appropriate to have that reading very often at the start of the service. It's great at setting the scene for the readings that usually follow from Matthew and Luke's accounts of the Christmas story. But just one of the paybacks for taking Isaiah seriously is that we don't just learn about the light. There is more than just that verse and those like it in Isaiah. If we engage with Isaiah seriously, we don't just learn wonderful stuff about the light, although we do, but we learn more about the darkness that made that light shine so brightly, and we learn more about why that light was so desperately needed. You see, Isaiah isn't just the great prophet of God's light. He's the great prophet of God's darkness as well. Who was Isaiah? Well, Isaiah, there's a picture of him done much later. We don't really know if he looked like that. Isaiah lived around 700 years before Jesus, and he lived in Jerusalem. Now, because of his access to the kings of Judah, which seems to have come very easily, some have suggested that he was quite high up the social scale rather than being a commoner. He may have been a nobleman. He may have even been a member of the royal family. That's just guesswork. But what we do know is that Isaiah was in the temple on one occasion, and he had an amazing vision of God's holiness. A vision of God's holiness that made Isaiah see much more clearly than he had before, both his and his people's sinfulness. And Isaiah says these words, having witnessed God's holiness, he then sees what he and his people are like. And he says, woe to me, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah's lips are then cleansed, as we heard in the reading, by one of the seraphim, one of these angelic creatures who comes and touches his lips with a burning coal to take away his sin, and he is then commissioned to take God's message to God's people. And the message that Isaiah is given to deliver is very strange, to put it mildly, because this is what God says that he wants Isaiah to do. Let's look at the words. Go and tell this people, God says, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people, and now God's giving Isaiah instructions, calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. It's a very odd message, isn't it? Isaiah is commissioned by God to actually close God's people off to his message. Isaiah is commissioned by God to make their ears dull and close their eyes. And why? Well, the passage told us. Because otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, turn and be healed. It's really very, very odd, isn't it? Because Israel turning to God or turning back to God and being healed is precisely what we would have imagined God wanted. And it gets worse. Isaiah asks God how long he's got to do this, and God gives him a pretty terrifying answer. He says, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, 
until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. That's what the words say. There's no way around them, really. And whatever more he may have been, Isaiah was clearly firstly a prophet of judgment, a very severe judgment, because what he pronounced was that God was going to very deliberately shut his chosen people off from his healing power. Israel's sin had got so bad that God was going to imprison her, shut her up within that state of sin. Now, there's more to say if you're getting a bit depressed, thinking, God, this is terrible. There is more to say because I'm not talking much about God's light yet. I'm just talking about the darkness. But that's where we get this emphasis within Isaiah upon darkness. In chapter 5 of his prophecy, Isaiah says these words, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And as part of God's judgment, this state of darkness was confirmed. The prophet then says these words, If one looks at the land, he will see darkness and distress. Even the light will be darkened by the clouds. And we see something similar at the end of chapter 8, just on the, uh, the uh, eve of chapter 9 and that stuff about light that we'll refer to in a moment. Isaiah says this, Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they're famished, they will become enraged, and looking upwards will curse their king and their god. Then they'll look towards the earth, and they'll see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. So darkness, I think I've uh, proved to you, is a pretty clear theme of Isaiah. God's people experiencing his judgment through being left to stumble around in the dark without his guiding presence. Now, how did that darkness actually manifest itself? Well, part of the darkness coming was in foreign invasion. What we see in Isaiah's day was that the pagan Assyrians came, a mighty empire. They came, they invaded Israel, and they took over the northern regions of the northern part of Israel. That's significant, as we'll see in a few moments. They took over the northern tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali and around Lake Galilee. They also besieged Jerusalem down in the south. They didn't manage to take it, uh, but they did besiege it. That was part of the darkness. But there was also another part of the darkness as well, and that was within Israel itself. Israel's Davidic kings, those kings that were descended from David, they were meant to live by faith in God's promises. They were meant to rule with justice and righteousness, but for the most part, they did the precise opposite. They ruled in a faithless and oppressive manner. And God's people, surrounded by all of this darkness experiencing distress and seemingly cut off from God forever, well, for them, this all must have seemed completely hopeless. And it does seem that way for us quite often when we go through times of darkness, doesn't it? All of us here go through times of distress and desolation. All of us here go through times when God seems distant and frankly indifferent to what is happening to us. Sometimes we can feel this on a wider level as well, not just in our personal lives where we can be experiencing desolation 
and darkness, but sometimes if we look further afield, we look at what's happening within our country, we look at what's happening within our world, and we see plenty that causes us distress and desolation. We can look towards the earth and we can see, as people in Isaiah's day did, only distress and darkness. We can look at the world and see, to use Isaiah's words, fearful gloom. And we can wonder what on earth God is up to. And where I think Isaiah can help us is through the message of this prophet that the darkness and the distress is actually all part of God's plan. That may still pose significant difficulties, but what it does say to us is that it's not random and it's not meaningless. The darkness is not the result of a God who's negligent or indifferent, but a God who, whatever things look like, knows completely what he's doing. Because what Isaiah shows us when we look at the whole book in its entirety is that the darkness that God allowed to come upon his people was a vital preparation for the coming of this, the coming of God's light. You see, God's calling of a people who turned out to be just as sinful as the rest of the world in the people of Israel, it wasn't a mistake. <coughs> but it was the way that all of that sin in the world could then be borne by the perfect Davidic king that God sent. That king, who as later sections of Isaiah showed, combined that royal status with taking on the servant calling of Israel herself. The one who, to use Isaiah's words later in his prophecy, was pierced for our transgressions. The one who was crushed for our iniquities. Why? Precisely so that God's blessings could then flow beyond his people now freed from sin to everyone within the world. Now that's all background for us hopefully being able to understand Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 to 7 a bit more clearly. We're going to look at those words again now and they're words that we're very familiar to hearing at Christmas time as I say quite often the first reading of a carols by candlelight service but they gain their significance, they gain their meaning, they gain the depth of understanding that they really deserve when we read them against the background that I've sketched out already. So let's look at these verses. It starts off by referring, notice, by referring to those very northern regions that were the first to suffer the humiliation of being taken over. During the time of Isaiah, when the Assyrians invaded, it was the northern regions of Israel, the northern part of the northern kingdom, that was the first part of Israel to sort of lose its status of being free of foreign domination. Zebulon and Naphtali, those northern tribes, and Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles. The reason it was called that was because that region was then dominated by pagan foreigners. So that is the focus at the start of this famous passage. Isaiah speaks about those very parts of the northern kingdom that were first to be taken over. Those people knew all about darkness, and that's why it's particularly appropriate that in the next verse, 
The people in those territories who are so used to walking in darkness, we're told, have instead seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, Isaiah says, a light has dawned. We imagine what life must have been like for people living in those territories, to be uh, suffering foreign occupation with all the horrors that that would have meant. They would have known all about darkness in those northern regions around Galilee, those tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. And yet, Isaiah promises to people who were living within that state of darkness at that time, that a time would come when in that very region, those walking in darkness had seen or would see a great light. And he goes on, more of what Isaiah says in this passage makes sense given what was happening during his own day. Rather than being diminished as Israel was in Isaiah's day, this vision of the future shows how God has enlarged the nation. It was shrinking, it was diminishing in Isaiah's time. The very opposite happens in this wonderful vision of the future. God has enlarged the nation and increased the people's joy because it says, just like in days of old, when God defeated Israel's enemies such as Midian, that was Gideon in the book of Judges, their oppression would have ended. So a wonderful vision of uh, everything that was dark in Isaiah's day being reversed. And why has it happened? It was because in place of the weak and the faithless Davidic kings of Isaiah's day, people like Ahaz, Isaiah, uh, Hezekiah was a bit better, but not really much, in place of those faithless and weak kings of Isaiah's day, God would send the genuine article. God would send a son who would be the perfect king and indeed the embodiment of God himself. And this perfect king, Isaiah says, he would reign on David's throne and over his kingdom forever and establish that kingdom with perfect justice and righteousness and of course, all of that is what we see in the ministry of Jesus, don't we? We see that child king born, yes, in Bethlehem down in the south, but revealing God's light for the first time, really, in those northern regions of Israel. Those very regions that Isaiah spoke about. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Why does Jesus' ministry start in Galilee and for the best part of three years its focus is up there? Well, it's a fulfilment of what Isaiah spoke about, the very place where Isaiah said God's light would first come. That's why the ministry of Jesus begins in those lowly northern fishing towns. It's in those small little towns, really villages around Galilee, that we first see Jesus' activity, don't we? We first see Jesus' healings, we see his exorcisms as he drives out evil spirits, showing that evil is on the way out. We see the other miracles that Jesus performs. We see him gathering his first followers and showing what it looks like to live under God's rule. It's all a big fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And of course, Jesus follows this by then decisively defeating Israel's real enemy, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans to give that succession of empires that came along and oppressed Israel, they weren't the real enemy. Jesus reveals, and this is one of the reasons why his exorcisms are so important, he comes to reveal that the real enemy 
standing behind not just those foreign oppressors, but everything that was wrong with Israel as well. The real problem was with evil. And Jesus comes to decisively defeat that real enemy in evil that was oppressing her. So that once that victory is won, when Jesus dies on the cross, even those pagans who formerly were Israel's oppressors could be incorporated into God's perfect kingdom and become part of his eternal reign of justice and righteousness. So this Advent 2022, as we approach yet another Christmas, quite a few of us here have seen a few, haven't we, down the years, helped by Isaiah, and we could do worse than try and read Isaiah over Christmas. If you think 66 chapters is a bit too many, just read the first 12 uh, chapters. That will cover a lot of the vital stuff. Perhaps you can approach Isaiah 40 to 55 before Easter. But as we approach Christmas this year, Let's not just focus on the light. The light is wonderful, but the light makes sense because of the darkness. The light that came in Jesus Christ, the perfect son of David, but let's also focus on the darkness that Isaiah also says so much about. The darkness that looked like a sign of God's absence and indifference, but which in reality was all part of the mysterious and yet very deliberate plan for perfectly revealing God's light, so that sin, having been exposed, having been shut up and trapped within Israel, could actually be finally defeated once and for all, so that everyone, not just God's existing people of Israel, but everyone could then belong to him. The darkness seemingly random and pointless, but which in reality was vital for the revelation of God's perfect light. How can this help us? Well, I hope and pray that it can help us to have greater confidence in what God is up to in the time when darkness in our own lives seems completely overwhelming. It can very often seem that God is conspicuous by his absence, can't it? When we go through times of real darkness in our lives or when people that we love go through real desolation and hardship, it can seem for all the world that God is conspicuous by his absence, completely indifferent, got too much on his hands to be worried about what we're going through or even what the world is going through. But that is never actually the case. Even when God appears to hide his face from us, He's always working to a purpose. And we can be even more specific than that. The purpose that God is always working to is that of his perfect justice and righteousness being advanced over the earth. The witness of Isaiah is that even the darkness that God allows to come is all part of his plan for revealing his perfect light. We can't fully appreciate chapter 9 of Isaiah unless we appreciate chapter 8. The light needs the darkness to make sense. So let's try and remember that this Advent time. As we see the lights in the darkness, let's try and remember that verse and reflect on it in its context. There it is again. The people walking in darkness, Isaiah says, looking forward to that future day when God would dramatically act, 
The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Let's pray for a moment together. Let's bring before God the darkness, the desolation that perhaps we're experiencing or which someone close to us is or perhaps our thoughts will be there for those in parts of the world at the moment where the darkness seems overwhelming. Father God, all of us are tempted when we go through periods of darkness to think that you are indifferent, completely absent and unconcerned. But we thank you for the witness of the prophet Isaiah that your mysterious plan involves allowing darkness to fall so that your light will shine more brightly through that darkness. And we pray this Advent that you would help us to be honest about the darkness in our life and in our world and that that will be part of us looking particularly keenly for your light to come into this world and further into our lives. We pray this Advent that you would help us to reflect more on what that means. And we pray, Lord God, that we'd all be renewed by being determined to experience your light and to shine your light in a world of darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.